0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 363 of the podcast. It is April 6th, 2020. I'm joined today by Crystal Y. Davis, and this is the first time in about 10 years that I am publishing a video podcast. So if you want to listen to our conversation, just keep doing so. Um, but if you would rather watch our conversation, you can go to leanblog.org slash 363, or you can find it on YouTube. You can look for my YouTube channel. The username is m graven, But here is our discussion. I'm joined today by Crystal Davis. Crystal, how are you?
1: I'm well, I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. And how are you? Oh, hanging in there.
0: Wow, awesome. it's harder to answer that question these
1: days. I know, than, right? I know.
0: All things considered, um, got my health, and we're getting indeed. by. Right?
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: And uh, you know, so we're recording this, you know, here in um, on, on April sixth, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, Crystal's thoughts on um, you know strategies, what's happening these days with COVID nineteen, and. Disruptions to business, amongst um, other things in our lives. But I was wondering if you could just, you know, uh, start off, introduce yourself. You know, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you're sort of like me. You've got a lot of things listed that say some date to present. You have a lot. Tell us about that.
1: Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, uh, Crystal Y Davis and uh, the primary company that's listed there, the Lean Coach Inc. That has been. Um, a consulting company that I started about, oh, I think we're in year five. And that's the uh, primary function of what I do in terms of serving our our clients and basically in the lean space, but a little bit broader than lean in terms of uh, what we do. One, we focus on transforming leadership and uh, leadership cultures. So all people, in my opinion, can be leaders, Mm -hmm. not just by position or title, So we work to develop those as we're developing their problem-solving skills. And we help companies with their growth strategies. And then we help them to align their continuous improvement and business strategy. So that's the Lean Coach. You'll also see on there your corporate confidants. So I am a um, certified leadership development coach. And so I often will just do executive coaching. Mm. These are leaders who aren't necessarily interested in lean or transformation or any of that work. They just, they need a confidant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I have found in my, in the other work that I do in the lean coach that oftentimes um, leaders don't have a space where they can just be transparent about decisions that they have to make and concerns that they have. And so I serve as that confidant. Mm-hmm. And then the newest one actually is M And so that's actually a managing partnership that i that I uh, recently joined with a couple of other, well, there are actually eight of us total, Mm -hmm. lean practitioners, mostly, Mm -hmm. and then some people that um, actually do work in organizational design and development, um, leadership. And so we came together as a coalition with the intent that we wanted to We wanted to be able to serve the community in a different way. So people who might be interested in lean or organizations interested in lean, but they're also interested in how we actually um, deal with people. You know, there are a lot of things that we talk about in the lean community around respect for people, people transformations, behaviors, characteristics, mindsets. And so that's kind of how this coalition of uh, practitioners came together Mm-hmm. Uh, under this M plus uh, managing partner relationship. So,
0: and, and you're working with some other people I know. Yeah. A varying degrees, if you want to say.
1: Or. Yes. They're all amazing. So, I'm pretty sure you know Muhammad mm-hmm. and Paul.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm thinking, who else would you Sonia. know? Sonia. You know, Sonia. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Yep. All right. Yeah. And,
0: and, and y'all did uh, a virtual. Summit yeah. last Friday, right?
1: Yeah. Virtual summit. Oh my God! So we had a virtual summit last Friday, and Mark, the I was glued to my chair yeah. because I had heard, you know, roundabout. I of course knew what I was presenting, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as we talk about the business impact of COVID nineteen. But I was, I was glued. The content was just superb. Superb. I mean, um, Sonia talked about leadership. She talked about how now is the time where leaders need to, um, you know, put compassion over uh, compliance Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and, and, you know, as it relates to how you measure productivity and performance and redefining those things. Uh, We had a conversation about the nine um, signals of a toxic environment and how that plays out in a remote work environment. I don't know how many Zoom calls you've done where people will say things that aren't so nice. <laughs> over the mean, last like,
0: well, I've, I've uh, been a victim of a Zoom bombing because of somebody's happy hour. Is that what you mean? Or, <laughs> no. Or just this within actually, meetings.
1: Just as in meetings, in meetings, whereas, you know, um, in a in a conference room setting, you might be aware of being politically correct, whereas on Zoom, you've got other stress factors at home mm-hmm. and, just not so cogn- and you're and just in general, people are stressed. And so people may make comments that are just snide and um, you know, how do you how do you manage that when you're working remote when maybe in the office or the conference room you can go by the coffee ma- coffee machine and say, Hey, you know, that comment was probably out of line. I was feeling this egg-. well, now that you're remote, it's an intentional phone call or an email. Are people gonna do that? Right? So just the content was just absolutely, um, absolutely amazing. Uh, Muhammad actually talked a little bit about uh, this framework that talks about, you know, working in complex problems like w- and crises like what we have today and how people ebb and flow between simple and complex. And, you know, you got to be able to manage all of those those swings. We talk about change management. This is not even just change management. This is like, you know... You have people who have a whole house full of household full of people trying to get work done <laughs>
0: yeah so. i i've I've seen people's kids and pets and, <laughs>
1: and
0: in the background of zoom meetings
1: Have you seen those um sometimes
0: in the foreground
1: <laughs> oh oh yeah, have you seen the ones where the uh the spouse doesn't know they're on a zoom meeting and they come out in their bathroom <laughs> it's just all sorts yeah. of stuff, yeah, yeah yeah
0: so uh, new new risks that we didn't have before but i'm curious with with the the virtual summit was it always planned to be that format or was that a reaction to the work from home covid-19 era
1: it was actually um we were planning to do a virtual summit but we were planning to do it let's just say like a month and a half from that from the time we actually did it so we pulled it together in a really short period of time because we felt like the topic um, you know, the fear of leading in uncertain times was, was so apropos now. Yeah. So.
0: And, um, and it was, it was a live event. I wasn't able to attend. Is there going to be a way for people to pay to access the recordings?
1: Absolutely. They were, um, they actually met on Sunday. I couldn't be with them on Sunday to talk about how we repurpose the content mm-hmm. and make uh, that available to people for, for a low price point. Um, so I definitely, I will share with you anything that they come up with, but okay. the, the content was amazing. It yeah. was absolutely amazing.
0: And I'll, I'll put a link to that. Um, it'll, it'll be leanblog.org 363 okay. slash three, six, three page for this episode. So, so the viewers or listeners, um, can go find that for anyone watching on YouTube. I'll, I'll put the link in um, the description Awesome thank you so much. Of the video here and then one of the thing I was curious about I, th- I thought was an interesting part of the model because I, I did uh, Mohammed Saleh had um, emailed me about it and asked me to check out the page and I just I already had um, too many um, things scheduled that Friday but one thing that jumped out at me it was sort of a uh, a bit of a choose your own price model I was yes. wondering if you could share a little bit about that and uh, was that a uh, what was the, the hypothesis with the experiment? Or I'm, I'm curious how that went, if you don't mind sharing a little.
1: No, absolutely. So um, basically, we had a price point in mind, of course, when we before all of the, you know, the, the state, the shelter in place came sweeping across many states um, and or counties. And then once it became across the nation, and, you know, more governors were getting on board with this, we just decided that um, based on what we were seeing in the marketplace, a lot of even uh, extremely well-known uh, speakers, um, authors, you know, ex- content providers were giving things away free. Mm-hmm. And so we went away from the model of, you know, if here's a static price. We really just wanted to make sure that for the content we had, people had access. And so we made it just a donation uh, we mm-hmm. I think we I think we um referenced the price point, but we made it a donation because we talked about how some people when they see donation, um, they don't know they don't want to insult you, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but it also was one of those things where we didn't want it to be a barrier because people are being impacted so greatly by right. what's happening financially, right. um job loss and things of that nature. So that's how we we, you know, we literally had this conversation like maybe two to three days before the conference actually launched. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's it's good that you did that because like you said, there's a lot of people who um, are out of work or um, might not have the uh, ability to do that. Um, Yeah. It's interesting to see variable price models. Um, Our friend Karen Ross does a similar thing when she works with people, she says more or less, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know exactly how she puts it. um, She asks people to pay. What they think it's worth. They think it's worth.
1: Mm-hmm. And and she stuck. did that pre-quarantine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been her model, and it's and it's been ser- very successful for her yeah. uh, in terms of um, in terms of not setting a particular price point. So. Yeah,
0: I mean, I've I've experimented with that. I've published some books, or at least done the initial publication through a platform called Lean Pub, which has a choose your own pricing model. So you can set a suggested price. And you can set a minimum. That minimum can be zero, right? And then I've seen it, it's it's really surprising. Like maybe one out of twenty buyers chooses to pay more than the suggested price, which is an interesting okay. dynamic. Um, yeah,
1: that's very interesting.
0: So it's interesting to see that you were, you you all were experimenting with that here with your virtual summit,
1: and that was done through that was uh, the M plus, right? That was through the M plus partnership. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, it's interesting uh, because we did decide um, with it moving so quickly, we were just going to treat it like an experiment. We were going to, you know, take our lessons learned and we plan to continue doing other summits and offering valuable content. And so we'll just, uh, I think we had a lessons learned. Well, we we actually started collecting our lessons learned. So.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. I'm sure it sounds like there will be an opportunity to try it again. And every okay. time, a little, every time a little better. Right.
1: Absolutely. And it was so much fun. It was, it was really, I, at first I was a little nervous about it um, with eight people, you know, coming together and everybody gelling. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Glad, glad to hear
0: it. Um, So we're kind of, we're flipping the script a little bit, like regular listeners will know, like I, I usually have a pattern where the next question after introductions is to ask, so how'd you get introduced to Lane? And and we we both had some shared background um, within the General Motors realm, and I think we'll we'll come and talk about that later. Okay, but we've already mentioned um, COVID nineteen, and um, that was one thing we were going to talk about here. So I was just you know kind of turn it over to you, and in terms of what are you seeing in terms of how COVID nineteen is disrupting businesses? What what are organizations or individuals trying to figure out these days?
1: Oh, it's been it's been a whirlwind couple of um, three, three and a half, four weeks for for some folks that I'm working with and, and even just following other companies. So you have a myriad of things going on from companies, small businesses. And we tend to think of small businesses as just like your kind of mom and pop. But, um, you know, small businesses can have up to 500 employees and make millions. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. But, um, you know, as it relates to what these companies are thinking about, they're thinking about, one, the safety of their employees. Two, they're thinking about, can they sustain the payroll? Mm-hmm. Three, do they have enough cash flow to sustain the whole business and all of the other business expenses whether fixed or variable? And... Four, do they need to pivot their services with all of the uncertainty around how long this is going to last? And then, you know, most of them are trying to understand if they take advantage of the the benefits of the CARES Act, whether that's, you know, through the payroll um, loan or whether it's through SBA loans, can they actually afford to take on more debt? right
0: even at very low interest rates
1: but even still. at very low interest rates because if there's no revenue coming in and you already have debt and you already have cash flow issues you know that's a tricky that's a tricky bag and so you see a lot of companies that are already have already made a decision to lay off um i'll say non critical uh, employees some have made a decision to lay off critical employees which i think Probably, I, honestly, my personal opinion is it's too soon, but that's, uh, you know, I don't say that in judgment. I say that in not having enough information to understand if they just had no other choice,
2: mm-hmm. right? Right.
1: You don't have the money to pay people and the payroll information isn't coming for another five weeks, right? So, um, you know, but I think this is a testament to um, to how people lead. And so one of the things that I've been saying is it takes courageous leadership to stand up to a board and say, no, we're going to hold on to people Mm. and, you know, we'll figure out other ways to make revenue on the back end. And so um, in in my talk at the summit, I talked about um, these three phases that companies are in right now. One is crisis response. The second one is survival. And then the third being recovery.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so when you think about the crisis response, like, you know, maybe the first 14 days to 30 days, they're just trying to figure out what they need to be doing, whether that's how can we get people to remote work. Some manufacturing companies are trying to figure out how can we how can we have um, only (laughs) 10 people in this one work area or another work area and be able to prove that you can keep people six feet apart. And so you just have Mm -hmm tremendous amount of challenges. I was reading an article today about, um, you know, food producers, like they were getting orders from restaurants and from uh, large grocers and with reduced hours and all of these types of things, they were getting orders from schools and, um, you know, employers who have cafeterias, all of that has come to a a halt. But the food supply is not something you can turn on and turn off unless it's processed food. So um, so there's just a number of challenges that people are faced with and um, in trying to figure out what's the next move. And every day things are changing. And mm-hmm. so it's incumbent upon them in terms of being courageous is to be as completely transparent and conversational and open communication with their employees as possible and, um, One other thing that I've heard people are struggling with is how do they measure productivity of the remote worker? Mm -hmm. And so I've heard a lot of people talk about a number of, um, you know, reports that they're having to fill out uh, or paperwork that they're having to turn in to
2: prove
1: that they're doing work instead of the work being focused on the outcome.
0: Yeah, yeah. So as, as industrial engineers, I mean, it's easy sometimes, it's easier to track the activity than it is to track the outcome, and in a lot of cases, it's, it's the outcome that matters most that matters for business. Most. Right,
1: that matters most. And then you know, even some of the folks that I'm working with, I've advised them that if you, with remote work, um, you need to be more mindful to make sure that the tasks allow you to measure outcome, because people honestly aren't always able to work their static schedule. They they may start be able to start at eight, but they may have to start homeschooling at nine. And they can't just take a 15-minute break or take their lunch at 12, you know, with all of the the, the distractions at home. Right. And so if the work is getting done and the outcome is there, now is the time for a little bit more compassion as it relates to, you know, if someone was working at 8 p.m. to finish their work, who cares? Right you know, but a lot of companies aren't seeing it that way, especially with some, some really large organizations that are holding on to people. And I think part of the problem statement is, you know, have you revised how you do work and how you measure the effectiveness of the work Yeah. and what work needs to be done? Right. So.
0: Yeah. I imagine, I mean, you, you mentioned the word compassion and, you know, sometimes people say things like, well, You know, uh, it's just business. But we all have a choice in our businesses of how we treat people, whether you you use words like respect or compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, There are different responses in this day and age. Um, You know, some retailers have been criticized for not paying people who are sick. I'm like, well, wait a minute. During a pandemic, the last thing you want is someone feeling pressured to come to work when they're not feeling well. Yeah. Um, and some companies are paying. I'll give Home Depot credit on the positive side. I read an article where they're giving people, if you're sick, two weeks off paid. No, I, I don't know if it's no questions asked. There might be a little bit of a question, but you know, putting first things first. And you said mentioning safety. Yes. That that's that's an important um, important priority. Thankfully, for uh, many organizations, right.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's actually part of the Emergency Fam- Family Medical Leave Act is that, you know, the first two weeks should be paid and then it's up to 12 weeks total, including that two weeks um, because of that very thing. I mean, like, uh, again, if you're home with a family of four and one person gets gets uh, sick and you're not even that person, you should quarantine, self-quarantine yourself as not to expose your coworkers, even though you aren't symptomatic. And so it's, you know, you penalize this person for protecting you. <laughs> That's yeah. Just, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and so you're talking about these three phases. And, you know, I'm curious, there's that crisis response mode, which I'm trying to figure out, am I still in that mode or am I in survival mode as an individual and as a business person? Like, because to me, crisis response is this sort of, oh my gosh, what's going on? Let me just figure out. What's going on? What do I need to do? How much risk am I at? Um, and, and then at some point maybe you you get a handle on it and now you can go forward. But is there risk if an organization or a leader thinks their people are ready to go into phase two and people are still very much stuck in that phase one personally? And everyone's going to progress a little differently based on their circumstances, I bet.
1: Oh, yeah, there's absolutely risk, and the lines aren't so clear. Um, I explained to people that you, you, you may ebb and flow between Mm -hmm. all of these phases, hopefully not so much crisis response, but between survival, especially in recovery, but Mm -hmm. early on coming out of crisis response, you know, going into survival, you may ebb and flow back into crisis response because we're constantly getting new information. So, um, you know, for the small for the independent co- consultants like us, I mean, they just really released what the um support would be for for our businesses. Right. Like through the CARES
0: change. Act and mm-hmm. the, the sub programs within that,
1: right? Right. They just modified it to include independent cons- independent and self-employed um people. Right. So, you know, that may have shifted what you thought your plans were gonna be as of last week.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Um, and and not necessarily that it's, it's, you know, a panic, if you will, but it, it may shift you back into, well, oh my God, what does this mean for me? Right. Right. Um, Or how does this change what I do? And then uh, another thing that I've been talking to small businesses about is, um, in terms of crisis response, um, you want to have a certain amount of fast start energy around determining how you're going to pivot in your business. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a short term pivot, just making sure that you have that intensity around moving now, because if if everyone is moving to a virtual offer, you can easily be squeezed out. Mm -hmm. Um, If you haven't come up with what problem can you know, what problem uh, can I solve for my my clients now or new problems for new clients that you can can go and help?
0: So in your um coaching work and and your uh of different types were you already doing let's say a virtual executive coaching session through mm-hmm. a platform like Zoom or FaceTime yeah. or just the phone yeah.
1: all of my coaching with the exception of the clients that I also have um consulting work with are virtual yeah <laughs> virtual yeah
0: so are, are there lessons um you've been doing it that way for a while Uh, For for people who are new to this mode, do you have any kind of lessons or tips about being effective in a virtual uh, way of interacting?
1: Well, I think um, I do. I think it all depends on your personality. So, you know, I'm not camera shy and I'm typically, you know, me, whether I'm in front of a camera or in front of you. So what I try to make sure that I do is that I'm just present. And that the client can feel my presence. They can feel me engaged in what they're experiencing so that, you know, they may have certain body language where on camera they feel like they just need to be stiff. I'm, I have to, to learn how to see things, you know, facial expressions or really listen intently to make sure that uh, that I'm not missing anything that I would see if I were sitting directly across from them. So that's the biggest one. One, you as a coach, just getting comfortable yourself and then two, kind of setting the stage for the client um, to let them know. And then the other thing is I actually engage with them virtually. So as we're talking through challenges, I may pull up a a Google, um, a Google Doc and I'll share it with them. So we're both sharing in that Google Doc um, sharing thoughts or ideas, or I may give them assignment and I'll say, you know, Hey, for the, for the next 10 seconds, I want you to just write out everything that you're feeling about that situation.
0: And you have them do that live. So you I see them it. typing as they're typing.
1: Mm-hmm. I have them do it live. So finding different ways to engage with them. Mm-hmm. So we were physically there. If I wanted a whiteboard session or any of that, I just use, I do it virtually and create an experience so it's really about defining what you want your user experience to be and then show up in that way and then help them overcome any challenges that they have with being camera shy or all of that kind of stuff
0: yeah um maybe let, let's talk a little bit more about pivoting because i i, I can think of a couple examples a health system that i have been working with a lot which meant traveling and flying to that location a couple Three times a month. um, Now doing some support and keeping in touch um, virtually, but you know, hearing about some of the clinics that have been uh, one clinic in particular that I've been working with, there was some short-term kind of reactions, some short-term countermeasures that were very necessary. So, for one, um, trying to practice physical distancing, and Mm -hmm. this was in a like you know prenatal clinic setting where you know the mother and had to had to be seen. And there's a second part of their pivot um, related to that, but for for patients who are physically there, they're trying to maintain physical distancing and amongst the staff. And I had heard they started using walkie talkies to communicate um, uh, amongst staff in different parts of the clinic. And then the feedback, the the comment I heard from one of the people there was, you know what, we might keep doing that after things go back to normal, because <laughs> they found that there was a real efficiency benefit Mm -hmm. to that and then the second pivot is that this health system really um made a heavy push toward expanding telemedicine
2: visits Mm.
0: and thankfully um i think it was just through medicare medicaid i don't know how the private insurers are handling but being able to reimburse Reimburse. telemedicine visits that's something that hopefully becomes part of the new normal um, in, in a way that's um, not bad financially for the healthcare providers.
1: Absolutely. I had heard, I had actually read something where a lot of um, private insurers were, you know, they w- were totally against it before, and now they're they're giving into that. Um, so I'm hoping that that's something that will, will remain in place. Yeah.
0: And then the second example is just more from a local restaurant in Texas that we like going to. Um, You know, it's owned by two chefs who work together. uh, Very much a local business, and I don't think they ever did takeout other than doggy bags you might take home, right? Right. Um, It just wasn't part of the model, you know. But nowadays, you know, the 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 shelter in place, and now it can only be takeout. They've had to put in new processes. They've had to tweak their menu. They're doing some things that are. And I saw the chef in a Facebook video, which might be part of the pivot, right? They're trying to engage. Yes. With their fans and their customers in ways that they might not have felt the need to do before. And chef Bob was talking about like, you know, take and bake items that right. they had started doing or half baked or whatever. and whatever. And in one video he said, you know, some of this is working so well, I think it's probably going to stay around because they might be noticing that there's an opportunity to utilize the kitchen in off hours that aren't the lunch peak and the dinner peak. Exactly Even in the morning, or they can pay people to make use of that fixed rent expenditure and fixed yes. kitchen capacity in a way that I mean it's it's I'm sure it's tough now, but it might in long term, hopefully, it helps them recover and not just
1: survive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that I think that pivots like that are so essential. And um, you know, you think about how people for me what i've thought about mostly is how people have been able to shift their mindset things that they would have said no to before they're so open to right now and it's op- it's opening up so many opportunities i mean like how long has butcher box been around or you know all of these other you know meal prep order restaurants could have been doing this but- yeah
0: they were right. sort of stuck in a comfortable, this stuck is the way a, we've always done
1: it, right? They were stuck in a in a comfortable position. I mean, so uh, I have an example with um, a uh, plastic surgeon and med spa owner. And the surgeon general a few weeks ago came and said, you know, all, you know, non-elective services. And um, she immediately came up with a... Um, filtered non uh, N95, but filtered mask and started producing those under her brand Mm -hmm. to just make a shift.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. And shifted more to teaching people about in-home skincare and things of that nature. So it's just figuring out like being uncomfortable enough to make this pivot. And it's hard because I know for me, you know, you're passionate about the thing that you started your business around, right. You're passionate about it. And so for me not to be able to, to go into a shop floor and, you know, do things (laughs) to touch, you know, (laughs) um, it's tough, but you know uh, the times are calling for us to show up in different ways. And so showing up in a way that can still help people virtually make improvements. Uh, You know, I I was saying to people, I hope even from a lean community perspective that we don't get um, wrapped around the axle of only telling people how to do virtual daily huddles and Gimba and this and that, when there are real problems that these people are facing, and like they're in conference rooms, virtual conference rooms, making some serious decisions. And it's, it's so much of an opportunity for us to show up in a different way, right? Right.
0: Well, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. We could be pushing, instead of measuring different things, we could be Pushing activities or listening and figuring out what what are they trying to accomplish, or as you put it, meeting customer needs. And and we, we think as lean practitioners, you know, we, we can be uh, inspired by you know. There's so many stories about Toyota um, over time of trying, and other companies as well, of um, redefining some of what they're doing because they've understood better the need and the job the customer. Is trying to accomplish. We can do that as consultants and likewise not be, and I, I'm I'm trying to reflect and think about this. If, do I get stuck in the way I've always done it?
1: I've, I've, talked to, I've talked to a lot of a lot of practitioners who who are. I mean, we we're so connected to um, some of our own rules mm-hmm. that we can't get out of our own way. And, uh, you know, we've talked before in the lean community about um, companies and organizations saying, you know, oh, lean, that's the same old, same old, and, you know, thinking they need to be agile or doing something different. When at the end of the day, you know, this is a huge problem. It's creating so many problems so rapidly for people that this is the time we show up to serve as problem solvers.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Right? And so I can't have a five-day Kaizen. (laughs) I don't have five
0: days.
1: (laughs) We have two hours to make a serious decision that's going to impact people's lives. How can we do so in a structured way that helps me make sure that I am defining the problem appropriately? Walking, and I tell people, you know, the data from 30 days ago, it's useless. Yeah. You have to find new ways to collect data. And intel. Right. We have to think we have to think like like AI thinks. What what kind of questions can we ask? What kind of you know communication can we glean from to make rapid decisions about um things that need we, you know the, the problems we need to solve today?
0: Yeah. Well, and earlier you mentioned and I, I jotted this down. I mean you mentioned experiments. It's not so much of having the solution. But going through these rapid cycle experiments to, yeah. to test a hypothesis, to figure out what's working or not, refining it, tweaking it, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, can you, can you imagine, um, you know, we, we both have a background from GM. Can you imagine them thinking, oh, I've got to make ventilators now? Right. Right? But then I, I read an article today that the founder of Dyson, he mm-hmm. designed a ventilator in 10 days.
0: Yeah, I've read about that.
1: Now, what was the design cycle before Mark? Two years?
0: Yeah, good, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, GM and the other uh, Detroit automakers have gotten faster in their development cycles, but yeah.
1: ten days?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think there's a bit of a race because um, Tesla, I read, is designing a ventilator that's built based on Model Three parts. So, like parts. the the ventilator display is literally the display that would have been in the center of the dashboard. And there's other mechanical parts and pumps, you know, I can just imagine Elon Musk wants to get his brand new Tesla ventilator out to market faster than GM and get one out, you know, partnering with another company. Right. This this competitiveness would be, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think for good benefit.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, but i think I think more so than just the ventilator itself, it's going to it's going to drastically disrupt design cycles
0: mm-hmm. T- tell me more about that and what what you yep. hope
1: will mm-hmm. so you know we so i'll I'll give you um an example so um going back to Elon Musk, so spacex you know wants to design things in six months, and if you have any uh, understanding of the space industry, it's years before they bring anything because it's you know there's so many dynamics that you're dealing with and it's so dangerous, right? And so they can't even wrap their minds around designing something in two years, let alone six months. But when you what you see now in a cri- in this crisis is that yeah we may only be talking about ventilators, but we're talking about still life saving. Uh, a life-saving need,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? And uh, who knows what the numbers will be in terms of people that continue to get sick and test positive for COVID-19. But what we really should be taking away from this is the design process,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Because it's still risky if this ventilator doesn't work. Right,
0: right. There's gonna have to be FDA approvals and hopefully some of that is expedited in a way That's not cutting corners, eliminating waste from the approval value
1: stream. That's right. From from the entire design process. Right. And so that's what I think, you know, uh, in terms of, again, like how we show up, we should be documenting and capturing this and making sure that people have ways to. Um, identify the critical path and make sure that they just shift their mindset. Can you imagine now, though, for the people who, even when we go back to whatever our new normal will be, those people who continue to iterate des- and design in these rapids, how successful they're going to be? Mm-hmm. And what's the risk to those staple companies that continue to take a year, two years to design new products? Tremendous risk.
0: Yeah.
1: Tremendous risk. So
0: that's part of going through survival into recovery. In some ways, being stronger than we were before.
1: Stronger than we were before, and the survival phase for for what I described earlier, that's really more aligned with somewhat the pivot, but also making sure that you're viable for the next for the next short term duration, next six months, four to six months. Right. right? Survival
0: first.
1: Survival first. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, if you, if companies can figure that out, that, you know, they have a plan to survive, they, there may be some, some loss, right. You might have to, you know, uh, ultimately end up laying some people off. If we go past the, the 12 weeks of the, of the CARES Act, uh, hopefully they'll come out with more, but it's really about making sure that the company is viable. So the first is, can we save the people? Can we keep people employed? Right. Um, it's going to spur the economy but then secondly if can we remain viable over the next six months and what kind of short-term pivots or short-term pivots do we need to make to do so which ones of those pivots will become longer-term plays and then i think that this is also opening up opportunities for people to just pivot uh make a complete shift in terms of their offerings
0: yeah so um if it's all right in the time we've got left, um you talked about pivots. You've made some career pivots. So yes. do you mind going down memory lane a little bit?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I got my start um in the automotive industry right out of college. And um I started working I started working as an industrial engineer. Um <laughs> Right out of college and uh, about two years after i graduated i started working for for packard electric which was part of general motors Mm -hmm. and then probably about maybe two years after i started working for for um packard we became five after the the split yeah and uh and so that's where i actually got my lean background i was working at a plant in uh maquiladora in Mm -hmm. uh, juarez mexico and uh, we were making oxygen sensors for every single GM SUV mm-hmm. made. And, you know, during the late 90s, SUVs was all the rave. Yeah. And uh, so we used to produce probably about 90,000 oxygen sensors a day. Wow. And the quality was poor as hell. <laughs> <It was bad. laughs>
0: The data backs that up. I know,
1: right?
0: Bad. I, I suffered through that type of thing in the '90s at GM, also.
1: It was bad. It was bad. And so, with this new separation, we had competition, and so we got we were placed on new business hold. And GM told us we had to get our act together. And uh, our plant manager said, "Okay, well, we've got these books, these Delphi manufacturing system books. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> Let me blow the dust off of them." <laughs> And we literally, there was a group of engineers. We literally learned the, the engineering group, the manufacturing supervisors, and the quality supervisors, production supervisors. We all came together. We read those books, and we just started experimenting. And we, in about eighteen, no consultants. I
0: was because I was going to ask because where I was at at GM Powertrain in an engine plant in 1995, GM had hired some people who are basically internal consultants full-time at our plant. Um, One guy was from Nissan. One was Mm -hmm. from um, Herman Miller, I think. A couple were from some Toyota suppliers. And Mm -hmm. it was, those were incredibly helpful mentors for me. And then we got a plant manager who was one of the original uh, Numi people. Oh, wow. He was a GM guy who was sent to Numi. So then he came in. So that was Anyway, that, but yeah, similar experiences. But so, so I'm curious then without those coaches and mentors from the books, what, no, what, what happened?
1: No, no. So we actually, um, we bootstrapped everything. And in about 15 months, we turned the entire plan around. We remodeled all of the work sales. And let me tell you how bad our our quality was. So I had set up a 32 Point inspection sale, meaning every oxygen sensor went past 32 sets of eyes. (laughs)
0: uh, Not, 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 no no vision systems. You mean 32 people? People. Yeah. Okay. How many things were there to inspect for? I guess there were that many things or what?
1: There weren't. And we still had escape.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Right? Eighty-five percent, right? So we ended up turning things around. We 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 created. Um, we put in a lot of Pokioka. We put in a lot of work cells that um, we leveraged. You know, touch and go, so that the person wasn't tied to a machine. They could touch, execute, automatic reject. Just a lot of things that are mm-hmm. commonplace now. Yeah. Uh, we put into place, and we turned things around. We became a showcase factory, and that uh, ultimately is what launched my internal consulting career. Because after that, I was um, I was, you know, pl- um, pulled on a team to go around and help troubled crisis facilities. And that's how that's honestly, to be honest with you, that's how I learned so much about the broader business aspect and the people aspect mm-hmm. um, of lean, uh, because it wasn't one size fits all. I couldn't just stay in that engineering mindset of I'm only focused on the process. Um, and so that launched. um that launched my lean consulting career internally for Delphi. Mm-hmm. I moved around to a lot of different locations until the uh, end of my career at, at Delphi, which came when the automotive industry tanked. And, during um,
0: the, the Great Recession?
1: During the Great yeah. Recession, yeah. I was laid off, but I actually was able to escape You know, before that became final, but I was made aware that I was on the list. They had reached that point. Yeah. I mean, a third, of, more than a third of our plant at the time I was in Mississippi, more than a third of the plant was dark and uh, we were just losing work rapidly. So, so um, after that, I went to go work at Coca-Cola in their supply chain Mm. and um, in the bottling distributions um, aspect. Now the Coke company, the parent Coke company had already uh, been on the Six Sigma journey for a few years, the bottling company had not had any real continuous improvement, you know, initiatives going on. Yeah. And so I was a team of seven. I think we were introducing lean to the entire uh, bottling industry, bottling and distribution industry. So from, from the time we bottled all the way to the shelf, what's considered the supply chain, a shelf somewhere, yeah. a shelf, a machine Anywhere, everywhere, you know, the system was as big as the U.S. postal system. If you think about everywhere you can find a Coke, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's yeah. huge. Yeah. So um, so introduced um, the philosophies there, and uh, it really was, for me as a practitioner, a huge shift. One was getting and seeking the buy-in from the leadership team, because they were, they were just told, here's what you're going to do. Mm. And then That's two, the oh, yeah and and then here you know the other thing was continuous manufacturing like you don't bottle one bottle and then stop it's like no 1200 a minute <laughs>
2: yeah that's flow
1: <laughs> that's flow right 10,000 gallons of 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 liquid has to go somewhere <laughs> and so um uh, so it was quite intriguing it w- it tested me it tested me um and um i actually ended up working I suggested the that we work. I had worked with not at the time of uh, my first encounter with Lean, but I had worked with Mr. Yamada, Delphi, oh. uh, and um, we had partnered with LEI on their Lean business um, partnership. And so Mr. Yamada came in, and one of the things that that I found beneficial from from him was he was able to have those conversations with the most senior executives where I didn't have that level of influence at the time. And then the other thing was having that one-on-one mentor-mentee relationship. I learned things that I'd never seen written in books. Because
0: Mr. Yamada was direct lineage from Taiichi Ono, right? He was like one step, one degree of... You were
1: two degrees of separation. I was two degrees of separation. From Taiichi Ono, yes. And, um, and, and I mean, when I, you talk about like some of the things I, we just talked about in terms of challenging mindset, mm-hmm. we challenged all sorts of any type of rational, traditional thinking in the, in that system. And it, we just ended up doing amazing, amazing work in terms of, of, uh, a supply chain work and really trying to, uh, move them from a push system to a demand driven system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so just amazing work there. I was there for about four and a half years. And then I got the bug to go out on my own. Yeah. And um, I went out on my own for probably about three months. And <laughs> and I let my first client talk me into coming to work for him. And that was Thermo Fisher Scientific. Um, and so that's a t- another really unique business. Thermo Fisher has a lot of uh, low volume um high skew, high diversity product, uh, product offering, you know, and how do you control the inventory of a reagent? <laughs> like, you just don't know how fast it's going to grow or how much it's going to grow. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> you went from high volume to higher volume and flow now to low volume, high
2: mix. Yep,
0: low volume high mix. And now both companies, they probably said, "Well, hey, we're we're not building cars here." Was there that, oh, that defensiveness or oh, confusion yes. of?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, I I learned and through the Coke experience, and I learned through the Thermo Fisher experience that it didn't matter if I understood what solutions were possible. It only mattered that the leader that I helped solve the problems that the leaders identified as problems to bring them to the table, to then be able to teach them how to see the other things. Huge paradigm shift for me. So I'm going from a company that, you know, lean is plan A, there is no plan B, to lean is a four-letter word. Um, I don't care about that stuff right now. You're asking me to reduce less, and I'm looking at my yield on this very expensive syrup. This makes no sense to me.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So... And it, it took a lot of creativity to help them be able to see um, to see things the way that I saw them. I'll, I'll tell a quick story if I have time. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah. All right. So this one um, senior vice president of supply chain um, that I supported, I supported the one business unit. And I had been trying for months to express to her that we needed to do level scheduling. I had explained level scheduling until I was blue in the face, <laughs> and got nowhere. It yeah. didn't matter that I was, you know, saying we have all of this this inventory shrinkage, you know, twenty percent inventory shrinkage is not normal in the rest of the world, and but it was normal for them, and they had deep pockets, so who cared?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, the the ga- the oil crisis came, and gas prices went up. And so we're sitting in the staff meeting, and I'm, I'm a little frustrated because I'm just having to talk about these small-scale projects that we're doing at the model plant. Well, she said, you know, I, I really don't know what we're going to do. Uh, we're, 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 we're blowing through our fuel budget. I said, well, okay. Ding, ding, ding. Light goes off in my head. Well, why are we using so much fuel? Well, because we're having to go pick up all of this. We're making all of these deliveries. And I said, well, you know, what are we doing to um, maximize return freight? Well, we can't do anything because we got to bring out back the product that's damaged and outdated. I said, bingo. Why do we have product that's damaged and outdated? (laughs) And how much fuel would you save if you weren't having to bring it back? And she said, oh my God, we're using debt. We're using fuel to, to uh, transport dead inventory. I said, bingo, you got it. She said, well, how do we get rid of it? I said, level scheduling. (laughs) You only make what they need. Changed the whole trajectory of my work.
0: Well, that's a great lesson. And and, and thanks for sharing that because that's the difference between uh, pushing a solution and working to find and understand the need. Exactly. The internal customer in this case for your consulting experience and challenging exactly. thoughts. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so that's how I learned not to push leaders um, that I don't need them to be a lean zealot. I need to understand where lean tools solve business problems.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if I can meet them where they are, solve their problems, their eyes become wide open to every, all of the other problems. Yeah.
0: And then maybe, you know, it's kind of a, a, a final thing to delve into a little bit. Does that help open the door then to talk about things you mentioned earlier, like leadership and culture and more of an organizational transformation?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, once that became um, that leader's baby, yeah. then, you know, the leader understands that you have to get buy-in to help people understand why they need to do things differently. And that you 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 need to see uh, more of this, people being able to see this and bring that to you know to the leadership or to the organization, or have the the autonomy to make those changes as long as it's within the boundaries uh, of their work and scope of their work. So it absolutely changed how how that organization or that business unit led. Yep, absolutely, oh. and um, and I also think that it opened up uh, it opened up opportunities to see. This was one of the things that Mister Yamada taught me. He said, "You know, it's it's important that the people who are working on uh, making improvements for the company have opportunities to promote." And I love telling this story. There was this one uh, manufacturing supervisor. That um, he fought lean, oh my God, he fought it, fought it, fought it. And then when we started this project around leveling, you know, he fought that too, because he was always rewarded on getting the most production out and at using the least amount of waste in terms of product yield. And so, you know, it, we had to, I had to, to, to help the leadership understand. you have to change how you measure people because as long as you measure him on yield mm-hmm. and output, he's not going to change. Yeah. And so that drove some changes there, but this particular manufacturing supervisor had always had a dream. He had worked at the company for 43 years at the time I started working with him. He had, he came in as a teenager yeah. On the line, okay. He had always had a dream of being a plant manager, but told he couldn't be a plant manager because he didn't have a college degree.
2: Yeah.
1: When we started down this path in this project, um, he got so much visibility. Once he finally came on board, he got so much visibility. He helped us, you know, to understand a lot of other nuances from the production aspect that we were able to take and and mimic across the system, and he finally was promoted to a plant manager.
0: Oh, good. Okay. Yep. They, they, they guess they realized she was good enough. They made an exception.
1: No, they changed rule. the rule.
0: They changed the rule. They changed. Yeah. The rule.
1: Like, why would that hold anybody back if they have yeah. the experience yeah. and we now have, we're now creating a lean culture.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And so I often talk to companies about how your succession uh, plans and pathways are right in front of you. You just don't know how to tap into them.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So. That's
0: great. So, you know, you had all those different experiences and then just to to help wrap things up here. um, Nowadays, what industries, what types of companies do you support now in your various coaching, and consulting work?
1: So manufacturing and supply chain will always be my, you know, they have my heart. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But but, a couple of fun ones. I'm working with a company that works in property preservation for the default mortgage industry. Mm -hmm. It's all data um transactions and um working with a um a board certified plastic surgeon in med spa. Yeah so quite interesting um in helping a small small you know um organization to increase their profitability and grow and have good stable processes.
0: Yeah. Very
1: cool.
0: Very cool. And uh where where can people find you online if they want to learn more about your work and and services you might be able to uh, Help them out
1: absolutely thank you so the best place is on linkedin and it's crystal y davis and then our website theleancoachinc.com. the
0: lean the yes so i will put that in uh the show notes on the blog again that's leanblog.org slash three six three okay I'll put it in uh, the comment or the Description on the YouTube page. So thank mm-hmm. you, Crystal, for not being camera shy. And thank you for having a lot of uh, stories and thoughts and insights to share.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. And please continue to be safe.
0: Yes, you too.
1: All right. Get go help the out. world so have some problems, Mark.
0: <laughs> you too. Get back at it.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.